Welcome to the Dietitian Rehab Podcast, where we not only challenge and inspire dietitians to think outside the traditional dogmatic education, training, and attitudes for a mind wide open, but also to challenge anyone to think differently about their own health. We'll talk all things food, health, and nutrition related as we explore points of view, evidence, and strategies for better health that will allow you a fuller understanding of the hot topics that everybody's talking and asking about. Hey friends, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Doug Cook. And on today's show, we've got a very dense conversation, lots of information. I know you're going to want to replay it back, replay it back to get all the details that my guest is going to share with us today. And that person is Dr. Aaron Gonshore, who is a PhD physiologist and a maxillofacial surgeon. He has published and lectured extensively on implant therapy and the use of stem cell technology in tissue graphing. For over 14 years, he headed the clinical advisory and educational boards of both ACE Surgical and Surgical Science Systems, providers of surgical equipment and regenerative biomaterials. His interest and expertise in the fast-growing area of salivary diagnostics and screening led him to create Fluids IQ, a company specializing in the use of saliva and other bodily fluids as testing mediums. So he now lectures extensively on the biological foundations of intestinal permeability and salivary hormone analysis. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gonshore, aka Aaron. I'll call you Aaron because you told me I could. Yeah, so just in terms of uh, introduction for the listeners, I heard you present at a symposium at the Science Center maybe four years ago on a whole bunch of things, food sensitivity, testing, leaky gut. It was super fascinating, which when I started this podcast, I, I thought you're one of these people I'd like to speak to because this topic is full of confusion for practitioners and for patients, clients. And so I'd like to kind of get your perspective on this topic. So that's a long introduction. But just before we start, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, your journey, which brought you to where you are today as president and CEO of Fluids IQ, described as Canada's wellness laboratory? Well, thank you very much, Doug, for having me on. And it's really a pleasure. I think that lecture I gave has got to be about four or five years ago now. And it was actually quite a uh, wonderful day. I remember it very well. I'm a PhD in physiology out of McGill University and then spent quite a few decades working in maxillofacial reconstructive surgery. That's the way I used to make my living and worked a lot in stem cell research, specifically involved with growth of bone, heart tissue, which was part of what I was doing on an everyday basis as a reconstructive surgeon. But I never left the research area and I never left the area of saliva, which was a favorite topic for me in terms of my research. And so going back, oh, a little under 10 years ago, I decided to really get serious about that and to see whether or not there was a possibility of opening a laboratory in Canada that would be focusing on saliva as a medium for testing. And we did achieve that. And in 2014, we opened up a lab, Fluids IQ, in Toronto. 
which is where it is now, and it uses saliva. That's where we started. We are an ISO accredited, ISO 15189 accredited laboratory, which is not easy to get. And we did manage to achieve that milestone about five years ago. And we started by doing salivary hormone testing, which we do to this day. It is really a gold standard in testing for bioactive hormones. But we very soon transitioned to also offer testing of the whole realm of intestinal biomarkers. We now call it our intestinal IQ series. But in this case, we did not use saliva, but we used blood spot, dried blood spot, which has some wonderful advantages, everything from ease of transport, relatively minimal invasive nature of getting the sampling, And of course, also allowed us in the real world to be able to have many healthcare professionals who could not do phlebotomy, didn't have phlebotomists, so could not do classic serum analyses and preparation of their samples. So we now do both saliva testing and we do blood spot testing. And the blood spot testing, as I said, is for our intestinal series of biomarkers, which we can discuss in a few moments. Yeah. And so these are validated for people who might not understand that you just do like a self prick and you can measure a whole bunch of things, vitamin D, omega-3 index, and these other things that we'll talk about. So specifically to the gut health or digestive health, you have these screening tests to help practitioners support their patients and their clients on their on their health or wellness journey. So this is what I think is really going to be interesting to a lot of people, both members of the public and practitioners. So can we just start by kind of highlighting those tests, the details and all the good stuff about them. So there's three, there's gut permeability, inflammation and food sensitivity. And I guess I'll just hand it over to you. I would just add a fourth and that is really looking at a certain amount of dysbiotic behavior and looking at pathobionts. Bionts, those are the entities that cause pathology. And we do a candida suite looking at a number of immunoglobulins to candida, which is one of the ubiquitous elements in that kind of dysbiotic behavior. I'll get into that in more detail in a few moments. But yes, you're absolutely right. I think you said the magic word a few moments ago, and that is that what we do are screening tests. I'll say it another way. These are non-diagnostic tests. I'll say it another way. Mm -hmm. These are non-IVD. These are not tests that are used for in vitro diagnostics. They are not that. They are screening tests. Another way of saying it, because you're going to see a lot of data in that area. These are R-U-O. That means research use only. You'll also see quite often I-U-O, which is investigative use only. What is the importance of that? It says that any test that is being done by a healthcare professional who right from the get-go is not making any claim. The word claims becomes extremely important because it depends on what you are claiming that your test can do. And as much as our tests are wonderful, we at no time claim that these are IVD, meaning they are not diagnostic tests. And I think it's important for your audience to know that. We offer the intestinal IQ series, and I said we did it with dried blood spot. 
for the reasons that I enumerated before. In order to do that, when you talked about validation, that's not easy to do. Validation for blood spot is actually quite difficult because the assays that are created by companies who want to really want you to work with their various antibodies, whatever they're offering, will normally validate it for serum, for the most part. Some is for urine, occasionally for saliva. Most of it is for blood, meaning for serum, sometimes for whole blood. What they do not do, almost universally, they do not validate for dried blood spot, except for very, very specific circumstances. And so what happens is if that you are a lab that wants to transition to dried blood spot, you need to take those assays that were developed with their reference ranges, etc., for serum analysis, and you now need to be able to make them equivalent to what you would be seeing with dried blood spot. And I think that that opens up a whole other area because you need to know how to work with dried blood spot. You need to know how to take that dried blood, which is whole blood, and you need to place it back in solution. You need to properly dilute it. You need to get rid of a lot of the red blood cells. You need to get rid of the hemoglobin. You need to get rid of all of those things so that you can get at the good stuff that you're really looking for. When you're doing serum tests, if you're in a clinic or a lab that can spin down whole blood, what you're really doing is getting rid of all that stuff. And what you're sending out to the lab is serum. So that is why serum has been, for many people, the way to approach it. Here is the skeleton in the closet. If you're doing serum, anybody who's gone to a hospital, a phlebotomist takes blood, they say, we're sending it to the lab in the hospital. Well, that takes an hour. That takes several hours. And the lab is already doing the test. The companies that create those tubes in which the blood goes into They validate those tubes for a number of hours. They do not validate them for days, which is quite often what happens when it's in transport. And so that begs the question, what happens to that blood that's sitting in that tube for a few days and finally shows up at the lab? How adulterated is the contents of that tube? And can you really be justified in saying that you have unadulterated blood sample in there. Trust me, this is not a small point. It's a very big issue. With dried blood spot, given what I told you before about the difficulty in originally validating it, when you get it right, the beauty of blood spot is that now it's a dried medium on a special kind of paper. It can sit around for days, and unless you abuse it, It stays in limbo for quite a few days, even weeks, while it's being transported. So it is a wonderful way for transport. It's very stable. And because it's a blood spot card, it's a flat card. Mm -hmm. And you can put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it and send it to a lab. Yeah, so that's good. So it's important for people to know I've done studies myself, uh, vitamin D and some other things and my fatty acids, and I've put it on the card. And I know there's a a reactant or a fixant. So I've always been curious to know, just you hope it's it's doing what it's doing and it's it's stabilizing the sample. So in that case, 
whatever they're looking at is what you're saying is it's it's been validated to ensure that whatever's being analyzed is what's expected to be analyzed because of the reliability of the dry spot. Exactly. And I will tell you that as an ISO accredited lab, whether we liked it or not, we have no choice. You have to be on there because they come and check you. And, and it's minute checking by the institutions that give you your ISO accreditation. But I did want to answer your question, which I've gotten to in a very circuitous way, and that is, what are we actually testing for? The reason we got into the whole area of intestinal biomarkers was really because of zonulin. And zonulin, which we can get into in much more detail, is the real game changer. It is the first objective biomarker for intestinal permeability, which we have lovingly called leaky gut for many years, but it is ultimately known as intestinal permeability. And it was when we got into that and were able to be the first lab in North America, and we're very proud of this, to validate zonulin and validate it for blood spot, that we were confronted by the fact that many clinicians said, well, if you're going to do this, could you please also offer some of the ancillary tests that might be able to give us an even broader picture of what's going on? Ergo, inflammatory situation. And for that, we do histamine and diamine oxidase. We do food sensitivity testing. We do both 88 and 24, and I can get into that in much greater detail in a few minutes. And of course, as I mentioned to you, we also offer a candida suite, which is testing the three major immunoglobulins that are involved with that, which is IgG, IgA, and IgM. So that's uh, that's a nice comprehensive suite. So basically, with these tests, you can measure the degree or you can get a barometer, I guess, a sense of whether or not there's increased intestinal permeability, also called gut barrier dysfunction. And along with that, there's going to be typically some evidence of inflammation because if the cells aren't working and things are getting in that shouldn't into the bloodstream from the intestines, there might be some localized inflammation. You'll go into the more detail with the food sensitivity and then the dysbiosis, which we know can stimulate the release of zonulin, which can increase the permeability of the gut. So this, so this is a nice, sound, nice sounding suite of screening tests. Yeah, it's very important. It is a suite that we like to call it making the portrait as accurate, as in focus as possible. And with each additional test, it brings that portrait more to life. I think that might be part of the problem because as a clinician, I've had people come to me with IgG food sensitivity tests anywhere from two, three, four, five hundred. They're put on restrictive diets. They've lost weight. They get a high reading for kiwi. And it's like, I'm allergic to kiwi. And it's just, I don't know how you'd make sense of that. So out of context, it doesn't sound like it would make sense, which is why these other ones are, it really is better to have all of them together. So specifically on IgG, I know you've been asked this a million times because you are offering this test. So there's a lot of controversy around IgG as to whether it's really measuring an intolerance or if it's a measure of allergy, if it just means you've been eating a lot of that food. Did you want to kind of just, jump in and kind of give an overview of IgG? Well, look, 
Let me just make a couple of very quick statements. The word intolerance is not the term, it's sensitivity. Intolerance deals with uh, classically, for example, lactose intolerance and so on. It's a very different entity. What we're talking about here is a very specific type of immunoglobulin reaction, which we call sensitivity, and we separate that from classic allergic response, which is typically an IgE, as in Edward type of response. So what we're going to be talking about now with IgG is sensitivity, which is also important, but that is the the actual term. Look, there have been a number of articles, and I'm sure all of your listeners have read many, many different articles. This is a very controversial area. Back in, in 2012, the Canadian Society of, of Allergy and um, uh, Clinical Immunology, by the way, this is going to be about five or 10 minutes because I want to get this off my chest no, as well. They made a quote, and I just wrote it down here. I'm going to read it. The literature currently suggests that the presence of specific IgG to food is a marker of exposure and tolerance, underlined, to food, as seen in those participating in oral immunotherapy studies. Hence, positive test results for food-specific IgG are to be expected in normal, healthy adults and children. End of quote. So that statement actually is quite accurate. However, the problem goes way beyond that statement. So in order to understand that, I want to sort of give a a short resume so that you'll be able to get an understanding, because without that, we're just blowing in the wind. Immunoglobulins, whether they're IgG, A, M, they are produced over time and due to, you know, an ongoing exposure to food antigens. Now, IgG is, number one, the most abundant, and it's also the one that takes the longest period of time to develop. So for those of your listeners who may not have it on their, you know, the tip of their fingers, IgM is the first one that arrives. It is relatively non-specific. It is a way in which the body says, I see it. There's something going on. It will be a signaler. And that happens within hours to days and within several days later, that titer, that level of IgM goes down. The IgG slowly builds over weeks. And after it builds, it can stick around for many weeks, many months. And there is an echo of that, as they call it, the memory echo that can stick around sometimes for for years and low levels. IgA is very specific. It's mostly within the gut. And when you do have a lot of IgA showing up in blood, that is because there is something that has happened apart from whatever may have been happening with the sensitivity reaction. It's something much larger that has allowed that response to be able to manifest itself in blood because it's mostly a result taking place in the lumen of the gut, mostly in the mucus layers, as you know. And the classic poster child for that is secretory IgA, SIG-A, which is one of the subcategories. So IgG is most abundant. So when it does appear in reaction to a particular antigen, it's going to last for a long time, even when there's no exposure at that particular moment to that antigen. What it says is that there had been 
previously some reaction to that antigen, and that's why that antibody is there, or it has reacted to an antigen which is very close in molecular character to that particular food antigen, and there's been some cross-reactivity, which is going on all the time. That's just the nature of the beast. So what is important to know, it's not the antibody in and of itself. It's the fact that it creates a complex with the antigen. So now you have an antibody-antigen complex. That is what is normally looked at and attacked by uh, phagocytes and other cells that are part of the immune system, and they are attacked relatively quickly because there is a tremendous amount of immune cells sitting in very, very close proximity, actually in intimate contact with the intestinal barrier area of the gut. As you know, whether it's the payers or pyres, patches, whichever way you like to say it, and so on, is a very robust immune system showing both innate and adaptive immunity. So it's important then that it's the complex. So during the attack by these phagocytes and other parts of the immune system, when this complex starts to show up where it should not be. Now, what does that mean? That means if the complex is sitting in the lumen of the gut, it is held in the mucus layer of the gut, peristaltic movement of the gut is just shoving it along, you may get very little reaction outside of the immediate area of that mucus layer. Sig A will respond to it, etc., and you will have a small amount of inflammation, or if there's a lot of it going on, it may cause a higher degree of inflammatory reaction. That inflammatory reaction will in turn develop a histaminic reaction and TNF-alpha, which is the necrosing factor alpha reaction, and that begins a certain amount of positive feedback. So that is going on, but it's going on in the lumen. However, if for any reason, and it could be anything from frank gut disease, IBD, right? Mm -hmm. Or any other number, all sort of colitis, Crohn's, you name it. Those are the two poster childs. But whatever that is, that will disrupt the physical nature of the endocytes, of these intestinal cells. What it does in doing that, it will also disrupt the tight junctions. Zonulin will begin to open up those junctions. That trapdoor opens up and a number of those complexes get into the apical side, which is the side they should not be in. On top of that, you have bacteria, especially pathobionts, pathogenic bacteria, and their various cousins that are going to take advantage of that and also move into the inner space of the gut. That movement is what begins to cause what is called immunodysregulation. It's a long word, which really means the immune system kicks in. It says this stuff should not be here. We have to get rid of it. 
And the way in which it does that is with an inflammatory reaction, which as you know, inflammation is not a dirty word. Inflammation is the way in which cells are brought in to be able to deal with that particular issue. That causes even greater inflammation. And that is the positive feedback, which will cause not just localized intestinal problems, but can then manifest itself with more regional issues outside of the gut itself. So just again, when it's just in the lumen of the gut, you're going to have a number of things. SIBO, the accumulation of high numbers of bacteria that are required for normal digestive function. The dysbiosis, you know, the increase in the percentage of pathogenic bacteria and all the toxins that they create, you're going to then get, which I think is incredibly important, you're going to begin to have enzymatic deficiencies and imbalance. And I'm going to state right now what I can discuss in much greater detail in a few minutes. The reason we do the food sensitivity test that we do, and we do 24 and 88 foods, and one of our major consultants says, you know, if I do 88 foods, I get 98% of the information I need. What is she talking about? I think, Doug, you actually heard her, Lucy Bluin, mm-hmm. she spoke. And Lucy Bluin is an integrative medical person. She's really quite wonderful. And she said, what I'm really looking for, I'm looking for enzymatic imbalance. She says, what I really want to know is where is that imbalance coming from? Are the food groups showing me that it's coming from the stomach? Because if it is, the people listening here know it a lot better than I am. I'm not a dietitian, but as she said, that's a protease problem. Could be other things, but it's mostly protease. If you're having a problem with grains, if you're having a problem with a number of other issues like that, which are really dealing with carbohydrate, for the most part, you're looking at an enzymatic issue that is emanating from the pancreas. And then the third thing would be the bile. When you're looking at the breakdown of fats, etc., it is coming from a vector that starts in the bile. This isn't to say it's one of the three. It could be all three. But she said that's what she wants to see when she's looking at a test of food sensitivity. So if you have in the intestinal lumen a lack of mucosa, which we used to call dry gut, if you have that as an issue, if you have a lack of proper peristaltic movement, so you can't get rid of all of these complexes because the mucus isn't being pushed out through the whole gut, then together with any number of issues, you're going to have a problem. And I haven't even gotten into the issue of the complement system because if those complexes, the antibody-antigen complexes, move into the lamina propria, the other side of the gut wall. One of the things that gets stimulated due to a robust dysregulation of the immune system is the activation of the complement system. Okay. 
so can I just digest this a bit? Please. Pun intended. So for people to understand, we eat food, the main sites of digestion are the stomach, we secrete acid, it starts to break down protein, we've got the pancreas, it's excreting enzymes to break down fat, carb, and protein. Mm -hmm. And then along the lining of the small intestines, we have these things called brush border enzymes. So there's still more digestion of these things that happen along the entire digestive tract that just don't come from the pancreas. And so it's normal. So you're eating, we're digesting stuff. I understand the lumen, that's the inside of the digestive tract. We've got a nice thick layer of mucus, or we should between, you know, all the other stuff like the muscles, and then eventually the blood system and the lymph system. And so for people to understand, I think like nobody's gut is 100% perfect, if we're going to call it perfect. There's always going to be some degree of this stuff happening, right? Like some things are going to elicit a response in the mucosal level with IgA. Some will sneak by and then we'll get these IgG antibodies, which are kind of downstream. And as you said, that could have been yesterday. It could have been, well, not yesterday. It takes longer, about a few weeks. Weeks weeks or sometimes months, yeah. A few weeks ago. And maybe things had resolved by then. But so this is happening to some degree. And so if people were to get a test, they're not going to see perfectly flat line, perfect results, whatever that even looks like. But it's when things become problematic, like too much of this stuff is going south that can be problematic. That's kind of like the background. And so for me to better understand if foods aren't being digested properly, the proteins or fats or carbs, whether that's pancreatic or maybe along the lining of the digestive tract, those proteins, well, everything has protein except for fat, but like there's going to be protein and carbs. So I guess what I'm thinking of is I've historically been thought that the only thing that elicits an antibody response is a protein, but that might not be true. What I'm getting at is if we're getting elevated IgG, it might be because these proteins are not being digested properly and eliciting this response. Yeah, remember, one of the things that you need to remember, it's true that proteins are a vast majority, but they're also all of the mucopolysaccharides that are there. Remember, the body is wonderfully efficient at taking in micromolecules through the cells. That's how we digest. What we do not digest well and can't are macromolecules. And it is the macromolecules that need to be broken down in order to be able to go through the normal digestive pathways. Where macromolecules do get in is through the open door of the tight junctions. Mm -hmm. And that's when they get in and that's when the body says you're not supposed to be here. We cannot handle that. And that's what causes a robust inflammatory response. That's just the way it works. Okay. So that makes more sense. So yeah, the things are getting in. And I guess if I think about fat, fat doesn't happen in isolation, I think, unless we're thinking about oils or butter. Right. But even those are going to have traces of protein, especially if it's part of a whole food complex. I should say something else to you, which is very important. When we have our clinicians ask for certain types of tests, we will do the test because the test is to help, right? It's an aid. Mm -hmm. And we always tell them that the test in and of itself is close to useless unless it is paired, unless it is integrated, mated, married with a very, very good clinical understanding of what is going on with that individual in front of you. Having said that, we always will say to them very humbly that the reason we got into it as a lab 
is to study zonulin. And we would suggest to them humbly that if they would like the next time around to consider not just doing a food sensitivity test, which many of them have been used to doing, but that they really should begin from the trunk, and that is zonulin. That's the permeability test. That's what you really want to know in order to really get an understanding of what this person is going through systemically. So you want zonulin plus food sensitivity, plus histamine and DAO, plus all of these together. But we suggest humbly that zonulin should be what they should consider as a baseline or foundational part of whatever they're going to ask us to do as a test. I think I got you. So given the nature of the IgG, which can be very prolonged, it can take weeks to develop, and it can hang around for a long time, it doesn't tell you what's going on. Does it tell you that there was past problems, present problems? So if they just do IgG, a problem could have been resolved. It's just that these things are still hanging around. So, and then if you tell people they can't eat these foods, it's a partial picture. So if it was paired with zonulin, because zonulin will be high because it's released from the cells and it's causing the gut to open up. So that makes sense to me that those two would be paired together as a good kind of base test, screening test. And then if they wanted to, they could look at inflammation like histamine and DOA and then maybe dysbiosis with the candida. Is there value in the histamine DAO on its own? Like if somebody was suspected of just having histamine intolerance? Well, I'm not going to tell you there isn't. And there are some clinicians who like to do that test by itself. By the way, we always do histamine and DAO. We do not offer those separately for reasons which we can get into. But definitely there are some who do like to do it. But I will tell you the vast majority will say that other than the fact that they may have a suspicion for whatever the reasons are, that there may be histamine intolerance or there is a DAO deficiency, which is, by the way, something that does happen fairly often, they will do that in conjunction with at least zonulin and often with one of the food sensitivity tests. And by the way, we will have many clinicians who will begin with zonulin and 88 foods with or without the histamine and DAO. And then a few months later, they will do another test, but they won't even do the 88. They may do the zonulin with 24 because of what they're looking for, which is a a resolution of the enzymatic imbalance. In some cases, they may just do the zonulin because they had a high zonulin during the first time they did the test, and now they want to see, has that zonulin level gone down, meaning has their permeability, have those tight junctions begun to really start functioning much more properly, which will have resolved a lot of the issues that they were seeing clinically. Gotcha. So I'm wondering if you could describe, if it's easy to do so without visuals, how this might look like? Can you do like a mock case study, something like that? Like I'm wondering if you could describe like how a clinician might use it or how it might benefit a patient. So you might say something like if somebody came in with an elevated zonulin and the IgG food sensitivity in how is the foods broken up? Is it, I think it's four. I can't remember what my test was. There are about six or seven categories. Okay. Yeah. 
As far as the IgG, as I, and by the way, we test for total IgG. I want to be very clear. That is sort of the, the classic way in which IgG is tested. We do not test for the subcategory of IgG4 and so on. That's a very controversial area. We test for total IgG. But zonulin, as I said earlier, is the fundamental test. And so I think you and I had discussed at a previous time that we have a, a manual that we actually offer. And when clinicians register with us, they can take this manual. It's been written by a number of your colleagues and so on. And what it does is go through several chapters which deal with the biology of all of these analytes and biomarkers. And then there is a chapter where it says, okay, here are the classic staging of treatment. This is what normally would be done by most of your colleagues in one form or another. And it would start with some form of, of diet regulation. It would go to some kind of initial enzyme balancing and mucus regulation. It would then move on to inflammatory regulation, permeability regulation, etc. All of these stages based on the level of zonulin because dependent on how permeable the gut is, this takes you from relatively small amount of treatment to getting to much larger groupings of aggressive treatment because of the extent of the permeability and what that has caused in terms of a positive feedback to inflammation, etc. So what our consultants are always saying is you want to catch them when there's zonulin is relatively low, because then the work that you need to do clinically becomes much less onerous. And if that zonulin has moved into, it goes from optimal to indeterminate, right through to elevated. When it's in the elevated area, then you have yourself a relatively significant problem which needs aggressive treatment. So we are using these tests as a way of helping you to see where are you in this individual patient's road? Where are they actually? And what do you need to do to try to begin to resolve their problem? Okay. Yeah, that's that manual that's kind of broken it all down in terms of treatment and, and how to interpret the tests and stuff. Yeah, so I guess it's kind of difficult to give an example without visuals, because I know I did mine four years ago, and I know you've changed the way you measure the zonulin. It used to be numeric from 1 to 20, but now you've it done... Is. It still is. It still is. Yeah. So I had a 14, which is in the red zone at that time, in the red zone. Yeah. which is no good. So there's something going on. Something's going on. Something was going on. We don't know um, what. Something's going on. And then there was several foods that were slightly elevated, still within the yellow zone, which is at the time was moderate. None of them were high or very high. It's almost impossible for, and we get this question every day. You'll get a clinician who calls and says, I don't understand this. I had my patient do a test of a thousand foods with the XYZ lab a year ago. And now they've had your test and it just, it doesn't seem the same. And so we say, okay, we are going to talk about what we do. We cannot in any way deal with what you have gotten from another lab, but we have a pretty good idea what some of the reasons could be. And it has to do with the three 
things you have to remember about any test, sensitivity, specificity, and what we call reliability or reproducibility. And that's what every lab and every assay they use needs to deal with. How sensitive is their test? How specific is it? Meaning, are they getting a lot of cross-reaction from other foods? And thirdly, if you do this test one day after another, are you going to get the same results? Because if you don't, you better ask yourself some really fundamental questions as to what is going on. And I could wax eloquent about how we relate our test to, I'm not, by the way, I'm not mentioning other labs. I'm just saying the various ways we do it. We use the gold standard, which is ELISA testing. And ELISA test is based on the classic 96 well plate. And in each little well lies an analyte, in this case, a food. And so it's very specific when the assay company creates it. They spend a lot of time to make sure that that food is very specific, that it is not going to cross-react very easily with other foods. And it lies by itself in one well. There are other companies that create three and 400 and 500 foods. So I think your listeners have to say, well, how do they do that? How did they manage to do that? Well, the way they do it is actually pretty straightforward. What they do is instead of putting one analyte in a well, they may put 20 analytes in a well. So they oh. separate that well into little pieces. And each little piece of the well has another analyte. So I always like to give people an example. I said, if you're standing in the dark and somebody shines a flashlight in your eye and you keep saying, could you take that flashlight away because I want to see what's going on beyond you. That's the same thing as one analyte really responding very robustly with an antibody, creating a complex. But you want to know what's going on with the other 19 and you can't see them properly because of the robust nature of that one of the 20 analytes. So it is not as sensitive and specific as you would like, to say the least. And so that's why we did not go that route. Yeah, I remember that point of the presentation now that you bring it up. And do we dare speculate why they're doing that? Go ahead. Tell me. I can tell I, you. I, I just like, why would you create something that's so problematic if you want to stay in business? You know what we get all the time? We have a lot of people who will say that clinicians who will say their patients come in and say, why can't you show me 300 foods? Well, I think with all respect, the clinician needs to say, because I'm not going to tell you, but I really am suspect of what that result of those 300 foods is really showing me. And more fundamentally, given what I said earlier, the reason for us doing it in the first place isn't to see 300 foods. It's to look at the major 88 foods and to see what are the enzymatic aspects to all of that. I'm not really interested in looking at 300 foods because in a way you lose the forest for the trees. And I think that you need to be able to really focus in on the most important aspects of it. Right. So you certainly get a sense of what's going on with fewer foods because we're really, we're not looking specifically 
at the individual proteins. We're really looking at this, the way they're digested, I guess, and, and you're going to keep going back to the enzymatic activity, right? So it's the three main ones, the lipases for fat, proteases for protein, and some kind of amylaser. I'm not even yeah. sure how many there are for carbs, if it is just amylase. There are quite a few. Okay. Yeah, yeah so I forget about that. So somebody... I guess I'm still wondering how people might appreciate this over audio to kind of get a sense of how it might work for them, both as a patient, client, and practitioner. So somebody has a high zonulin, and let's say they have a handful of grains come back. That might be suggestive that there's something wrong with the amylases and other carbohydrate-digesting enzymes, whether that's at the pancreas level or the brush border level. Yeah, I think what I would answer is not something I'm coming up with because that's I'm not the professional as a dietitian or, or a naturopathic physician, etc. Mm -hmm. I would say to you that what they say to us all the time is that they really want to be able to see whether they can take care of a lot of these problems with either natural foods or in some cases supplements. Again, it depends on how you practice, but whatever the case may be, they want to know if they can balance that enzymatic activity before they would do anything further. And that again also depends, Doug, on how far along the problem now is. In other words, we get back to that zonulin level. If the zonulin is very high, it is going to take a series of different types of therapy, again, being done in a stage-by-stage -stage basis, but you need to be able to deal with the issue. So, for example, one of our consultants says, it does me no good to have a patient come in and say to me, I've been taking the probiotics, which I was told to take, and it's doing nothing for me. And the clinician says, yes, but your situation is so inflamed that those probiotics are literally just being flushed out. You need to be able to deal with the issue at hand. And I think that that is where, again, getting a portrait of their permeability is a critical feature in all of this. That's good to know. So that's helpful. So yeah, zonulin is for sure the key. And then the candida I'm curious about, because that is just kind of Mm -hmm. It kind of rounds out those three or? We originally got into it simply because the science led us towards that decision. Right now, we do not offer a general panel dealing with various bacteria simply because it would be vast and that area is evolving so quickly mm -hmm. that we're not even sure which bacteria are the ones that we would want to look at. What does, however, remain as an issue, no matter what you do when you're talking about bacteria, is the issue of candida. And that is pretty well understood to be a pathobiont that can really you know, disturb the issue because it is a form of dysbiotic behavior where it's an opportunist and is able to take over in cases where there is dysregulation and imbalance. And so we know that in order to get a good idea of what is going on with candida, very much mimics what we were talking about with, with food sensitivity. You really want to see what is going on immediately, IgM. You want to know what's going on within the intestinal area itself, IgA. And you want to know what the echo or memory is, and that's IgG. And so if you have a candida suite, which is what we call it when you do all three of these, it gives you a very good look, a good portrait of what is going on with candida. By the way, it's candida albicans, just to be absolutely clear. And 
So that's what we test for. We used to offer IgG as an add-on to food sensitivity. As of July 1st, we actually stopped that. And we believe so strongly that you really need to look at the whole suite, that we're now offering the whole suite for Canada at pretty well the same price as we used to offer for IgG. So we're putting our money where our mouth is, so to speak, and saying we do think that if you're going to test for it in a way that makes sense clinically, you really want to get a chance to see what the nature is of that Canada issue, if it is an issue at all. Yeah, you need the timeline that, that IgG is going to be limited because it could have uh, been, exactly. been resolved. So that makes sense to me. So so that's pretty amazing. I mean, we've been talking for almost an hour and that's just the gut stuff. So you do have other stuff that you could probably just speak to briefly, maybe? Yeah. Well, let me just tell you, first of all, that we're working on, uh, you mentioned vitamin D. We're going to be launching that in the next several months also as a blood spot test, by the way, so it, it can be ordered that way. And the other thing that we're very excited about and we'll probably launch early in the coming year is our oxidative stress panel. And I'm, I'm not going to say too much about it, except that we think it's probably the best thing that we've done as a lab. And how it relates to what we just discussed is that, as you know, when cells are under stress, they're oxidative antioxidant capacity is overwhelmed. And it is that oxidative stress which will affect the mitochondria, will affect the DNA in the cells, the DNA of both the mitochondria and the cell itself, etc. And so that becomes a major issue. And one of the things that your listeners need to remember is that when there is dysregulation in the area of the gut itself. One of the things that it does, the way in which it sends the signals out to the rest of the body that there is a problem, is by an increase in ROS. Those are the reactive oxygen species. In other words, the cells of the gut are saying, we are in trouble. We cannot survive because oxidatively we are being overwhelmed. And so that is the signal that goes out to the rest of the body. And it is that that produces, amongst other things, such a robust response in certain people. And I may just add that it's one of the reasons why with COVID now, we're beginning to understand that some of the people who are reacting with what's called a cytokine storm are the ones who have an exuberant reactive oxygen species response. In other words, it is extremely off the charts oxidative stress response. Yeah, it's exaggerated in that regard, the cytokine storm. Yeah, it's- so I just wanted to let you know that that's something we're coming out with. But yes, we do hormone testing. We also, as part of our manual for intestinal IQ that I mentioned earlier, we always tell people that one of the things that some of your colleagues do on an ongoing basis when things are really getting out of hand is that they will do saliva hormone testing. They will look, if at nothing else, what we call adrenal check, they will look at the four cortisols, a diurnal cortisol and DHEAS in order to see what the cortisol levels are because cortisol has a dramatic effect on immune regulation in many parts of the body but definitely in the gut has very very strong effects on the mast cells 
and will trigger a very broad and strong histaminic effect in many people. So doing saliva hormones for gut is not a bad idea in certain cases. And of course, we offer that for people who do hormone analysis in general. So that is our other area of expertise. And is there any validity or value in when we're talking about inflammation? I'm just curious about your perspective of looking at something like C-reactive protein, or is it too generalized as a, a test? Because some places, places offer that as a blood spot. Well, C-reactive protein is, is a generalized, non-specific inflammatory marker. It is also an acute marker. So it can change very, very quickly. But nothing wrong with it. I mean, there's no question that if you want to see if there's a generalized inflammatory response, that will give it to you. But it will in no way give you an understanding in any way, shape or form of where the specificity is. It's not meant for that. And that is not a negative comment about C-reactive protein. It's not meant for that. And it's also quite acute. And so if you're looking for what is going on in a longer term reaction of the body, looking at long-term chronic reactions, C-reactive protein will not fit the bill for that. Okay. This has been a very, very informative talk. There's lots to digest. I'm sure people will be going back and replaying and replaying and replaying to kind of get all those amazing points. But the story doesn't end here. So I'm wondering where people can learn more about you and your work and, and what you have to offer. Well, I mean, this is not so much an advertisement because you did mention that I am the CEO of Fluids IQ and then proud of it. They can go to fluidsiq.com and they'll be able to, to see all the things that we offer, our sample tests, discussions we have, various papers, et cetera, that we highlight. And I think, Doug, you probably know me well enough to know I'm very happy to speak to any of the colleagues if they do want to have some personal discussions. It's my pleasure. We begin and end with education. Mm -hmm. And education to us is the sine qua non. If the clinician is not educated in how to use it, then we can talk from today till tomorrow. But we're not going to have people who are interested in testing. And that interest has to come from an understanding and a comfort level Mm -hmm. with using the tests in a proper way. And I remind you again, these are not diagnostic tests. And so many healthcare professionals I know in this very obtuse world we live in sometimes are reticent to test because they feel that they're not allowed to do diagnostic testing. I repeat, these are not diagnostic tests. Yeah. And just as a footnote, so we were talking about this before in preparation for this interview that for any of the practitioners who are listening, I think what's happened is because of the field or the conversation around IgG has been so muddied that it's been, I think there's just a reaction to think it's just too much or it's been ruined that people have kind of just decided to dismiss it. But it really is around understanding it and more importantly, how to communicate it to to patients and clients. And to your point about it being a screening tool, you know, dietitians, at least I'm sure other health professionals like nutritionists, et cetera, can do the nutrigenomics test, which is also just a screening test looking at 70, I think it's 78 now genes. So, you know, looking at those genes 
interpreting what those mean and how they might relate to nutrition risk factors and how to work with the diet to address those is probably no different than this test. Again, everyone needs to check with their college. I'm going to check with the college. It'll be part of the show notes, et cetera. But I really think it is comfort level, confidence, and communication. Let me just say one last thing. And I say this with all respect. When I did my rounds in medicine, I, uh, I remember that the doctor who was doing the rounds with us was a wonderful clinician, wonderful diagnostician. And he said, you know, when a patient comes in, when I see them in the room, he says within about five minutes, I pretty well know what their problem is. But it was the next statement that he made, which I think was critical. He says, then I do a battery of tests because I need to confirm that as much as I think I know I need to confirm what they have, or sometimes even more importantly, what don't they have, and to be able to eliminate things. So that is the way in which, you know, in case of medicine, conventional medicine has been going for, for many decades. I think one of the things, and I say this with all respect, for the wellness arena, many practitioners, sometimes due to no fault of their own or so on, have worked from subjective clinical assessment, saying, this is what I think is going on, and I, to the best of my ability, and quite often with tremendous acumen, have tried to treat their patients. I would say we're in 2020 now, and I think it's high time for all of the clinicians working within the, the wellness area, and here I bundle everybody, I don't care if they're physicians, it doesn't matter to me, that testing needs to be one of the foundational tools that is used from the get-go. In other words, the idea is not to treat for three months or six months and say, oh, now let me do a test and see what's going on. I would suggest humbly that you want to get some baseline foundational ideas of what's going on so that it gives you an idea of what road, what's the avenue that you should be on to get the most out of whatever treatment you're going to want to give that person. And that's ultimately what testing is all about. It's a way of giving you a clear picture or a clearer picture of what's going on. And I humbly suggest that that testing should be a part of the armamentarium today in 2020 of anyone who's working in the wellness field. It may sound self-serving. Don't use fluids like you, use somebody else. But the fact is, testing should not be an issue of should I do it or not do mm-hmm. it. I think yeah. that is a settled issue. That's, that's a non-starter as a, as a discussion. Question is, what kind of tests for what particular situation? That's a good discussion. Yeah, and it's within everyone's scope of practice, but people want to test as long as they know it's it's within their scope yeah. and there's some evidence to back it up. So I guess with that, we'll sign off. I just wanted to, again, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I love this topic and I know that we could talk for hours about it, but I would encourage everybody to check out the website just because there's good links. The manual itself, I think, is downloadable without having an account. You can correct no, me. No, no, you have to have an account. Oh, you have to have an account, okay. You have to have an account. It's our way of being able to say thank you to people sure. for, for joining with us. And Doug, by the way, if they want to contact you, you can get in touch with me. You know, one way or the other, we'll be yeah. very happy to discuss it. And 
Yeah, because yeah, that would be, a, I think, an important step in terms of getting that kind of information. So again, thank you very much. I'll sign off and perhaps we'll chat again. Thank you. Hit subscribe and get ready to expand your nutritional world, your perspective, and gain confidence in a way that you didn't know you could. And be sure to check out my website, DougCookRD.com.